0: who cares wins phrase or meaningful question a podcast for the deep thinker the curious intellect and for those who care deeply about the planet also sometimes referred to as who cares who wins
1: hello and welcome to who cares wins with me lily cole i'm deeply in love with and also very concerned for our planet. And in this podcast series, I want to unearth different climate solutions that we can get on board with, including looking at contradictions and divergent opinions. And in case you're not a walking Wikipedia, we'll be hearing more from our lovely producer, Kelsey, who'll be springing in from time to time to help clarify any moments or statistics for you. You'll recognize her by the lovely Scottish accent she has. Hi, Lily. (laughs) Hi. I'm so
0: excited we're back for a new series and we've got some very exciting guests lined up. We have
1: indeed. <laughs> Joining me today to kick off season two is the comedian, author, host of the global hit podcast The Guilty Feminist and just all round icon of feminism. It's Deborah Frances White. We talk feminism, climate change, and her encounters with Mother Ayahuasca herself.
2: Hi, Deborah. Hello, Lily. What an unqualified delight to see you. Oh, it's purely
1: like deeply qualified. In <laughs> fact, so qualified. Can you see on my background a red frame? Yes. Can you see who's inside that red frame?
2: Oh, I can. Is that me? It's Is you? That Wild. That's you and Wild.
1: So I, beautiful. The card you sent me, I um, folded it and framed it. Oh, and you're sitting wonderful. you're you're behind my back right now, which feels and in front of my face on the computer, so it's quite surreal. How are you? How is your life going at the moment? Is your cup half empty or half full today?
2: My cup runneth over, and that is both a good and a stressful thing. I'm very grateful for what is coming my way, opportunities but I am only one human being and there are only so many hours in the day and I sometimes get that stress point on where I'm like, you're doing too many things. But do you know what? My trip up the Spanish mountain to do some ayahuasca has really helped me because I can plug into some of the techniques that I learnt up there while uh, in an ayahuasca ceremony to ground myself and to help myself breathe, which is wonderful.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, thank you so much for giving us an hour. And I know very well that feeling of overwhelm.
2: I mean, you, I want to do, I want to do this. This isn't the problem. The problem is all of the admin and the other things around this. This is a joy. This is where I want to be. Well, hopefully,
1: yeah, we can give you a joyful hour of calm and an insight that gives you some inspiration for your, the rest of your admin and maybe inspire some listeners too. So, I want to get deep into ayahuasca, and that was a large part of the inspiration for for wanting to talk to you today. <laughs>
0: first interruption of the day for those who don't know ayahuasca is a plant-based psychedelic it's been used for centuries by natives of south america and is used most commonly in religious rituals and for therapeutic purposes and has been described as one of the basic pillars of the identity of the amazon people traditionally a shaman or experienced healer leads the ayahuasca ceremonies and deborah's going to take us all on a bit of a trip later in this episode
1: Before we dive into Mother Ayahuasca, Mother Earth conversation, I want to start with the F word, with feminism. So I'd written a chapter of my book, Who Cares Wins, on gender equality and the environment, and I was sort of blown away when I wrote it by the kind of the depth and number of intersections between issues around gender and our environmental situation, both from the kind of problems and solution space. I think it's important to actually just address the bigger concept of, like, gender equality and feminism. I maybe, maybe speak to sort of naysayers, of which there are still many, especially, I think, in, you know, countries like England, where we have made a lot of progress, that would argue that feminism is not so relevant anymore. And um, who better to speak to about that than you? <laughs> Deborah Francis White, icon of feminism. <laughs> so, so can you please uh, tell us why you have devoted so much of your life to kind of talking about feminist issues the guilty feminist the podcast and your book being this kind of huge movement that's you know galvanized hundreds of millions of listeners worldwide why did you go down that pathway and what's your position on the need for feminism today
2: well when i was 14 uh, my family became jehovah's witnesses so i spent from my mid teens into my mid 20s in a high control group, uh, or a cult, if you like, that was run exclusively by men. And there is not a single decision in the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses that has been made by a woman, even when to clean the kingdom hall is made by a man, (laughs) like the tiniest minutiae, it's all done by men. And so the macro and the micro is totally controlled. And it's a high control group, because it's one in which you cannot have any friends outside. And the punishment for leaving is shunning and that leaves you totally alone. So when I first left, I was completely, completely alone. And if you stay in it, if you do something that is frowned upon, other members of the congregation will report you to these men and then these men will come to your door and say, say it was you and me and we are both in a congregation. Someone might come to my door and say, Sister Lily said that she saw you having a coffee with a worldly woman that you work with and you've been socialising with a worldly woman. And then I would have to make an excuse and say, oh, yes, I was, but she's my boss and she just wanted to go over some work things. And so, you know, we had a coffee together, but actually it became an opportunity for a witness and I told her about the Paradise Earth and uh, I gave her some watchtowers. And then that would be like, okay, but if you you shouldn't socialise with her. So, you know, and I might then think, (laughs) oh my God, I'm so worried about Sister Lily's spirituality because I saw her wearing a really short skirt in town or something like that. And so men just like, you know, two window washers and a plumber will come to your door and tell you how to run your life. And there's nothing wrong with those professions, very noble professions, but it's just like those professions do not have any training about how human beings interact with each other. And so it's really damaging to your self-esteem. So when I came out, I was absolutely desperate to become a feminist. But I would always have this bubbling up inside of me and I would always talk about it. And I wasn't meant to talk about it, but I would always sort of rail against these injustices. And because I was seen as quite a devout, you know, full-time door-knocking Jehovah's Witness, that was laughed off a little bit. But when I left... You know, I came out into a world that was all kind of girl power and uh, ladette culture. I went to university in 1997 after I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then I came out into the of uni in the year 2000 into the noughties. You know, it was a climate of of slut shaming, of body shaming. You know, so when in the you know in the 2010s, this new wave of feminism came about, I desperately wanted to be on this train, but all the feminists I could see in the public eye were so strident, so sure, so funny and angry at the same time and brilliant. And I was like, well, I don't know that I'm doing it right. Like I'm a feminist, but this is true. One time I went on a women's rights march and I popped in to a department store to use the loo, got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. And I was like, oh God, I'm just gonna have to put my sign in a (laughs) bin and leave. Put my sunglasses on and rush the other way. So I thought, I didn't really qualify in some way or another, that I wasn't doing everything as well as I could see these women in the public eye doing it. But then my friend, Bridget Christie, who was one of those women, uh, a brilliant feminist comedian, said to me, you will never find your real audience until you say the thing you're scared to say. And my thing was, I'm a feminist, but. And once I started saying that, the podcast, which I hoped would have 2,000 listeners, because that's good for a new podcast, overnight had 10,000 and then 50,000. And now we've had 95 million downloads over 6 years but just a little bit more now like more like 98 so you know that's a phenomenal uh, thing because and i think it's it has a magnetic quality because what we're saying is you don't have to be perfect to be a force for meaningful change and it's a very entertaining funny space where we can also change gears and go into something uh, more important or serious and then you know cut that with a well timed laugh I think we desperately, desperately, desperately need feminism right now because society is increasingly uh, fractured. Equality is something we've always been striving for, but it feels like two steps forward, one step back. And, you know, the climate crisis, war, there's so much going on in the world. And I, you know, the world's been run by posh, white, straight men for so long. I am waiting for their crisis of confidence. I'm waiting for them to go do you think someone else should have a go at this? Because this is not going as well as we thought it would.
1: Yeah, I get, yeah, I hear you. I love the exploration of hypocrisy and it's sort of not surprising to me that maybe that's a big part of the the draw because I think so often with kind of, any kind of moral crusade, there can accidentally be this kind of self-righteous sense of certainty and that's really off-putting and it's really problematic because nothing's ever that simple. I was terrified to write the book when I wrote Who Cares Wins and to publish it because I've always felt like such a hypocrite, you know. And and does the hypocrisy of being an environmentalist, that it's almost impossible to mm. live in this century in our societies um, and kind of operate within our systems and not be part of the destruction of our planet in some way or form, does that hypocrisy mean that I should just shut up? Like, I'm sure many right-wing media would like people like me too. Mm, no. Or are we allowed to be hypocrites and still talk about the world we want and the, the ways in which we want to see change happen? And so I've tried to always, I've sort of done a similar, maybe with, that, with less of a humour, but kind of, I'm an environmentalist, but over and over again to sort of give myself permission to speak and also maybe to try and invite other people to feel permission to engage in this topic, even though it's complicated and even though it's impossible to be perfect.
2: Well, the problem with the way capitalism is set up is you can either withdraw from the system and be the best environmentalist that you can be, or but then what you will lose is your share of the social capital. And without your share of the social capital, your voice will not be heard. And so you can compromise by going, well, I'm going to stay in the system, and that means I have to fly to this convention to speak or... Uh, I have to, you know, go to this party and wear a nice frock and get to speak to the right people and maybe influence somebody.
1: Have you been stalking my life? I
2: mean, (laughs) I've got a pretty good picture of it, Lily. I've hung out with you a little bit. And uh, I'm like, you know, these these are the things that we need to do. Or you can say, right, I'm going right off the grid. I'm going to get a bit of land. I'm going to start a commune. We're going to grow our own vegetables and we are going to completely withdraw from the race. But then who is going to hear you? Then you have to rely on someone with social capital who is themselves compromising to come and shine a light on you. Yeah. And so you've got to be one of those. So for me, I think we need radicals and we need pragmatists always through history. Every every single time we've got change, we've got radicals shouting, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. But I noticed whatever the radicals were shouting about 20 years ago that seemed extreme, the pragmatists are enacting today.
1: Mm.
2: The radicals now are saying this isn't good enough and we need those voices. The pragmatists are asking what can we get done by Wednesday week? Yeah you know like i want to, i want to know what i can get done in a reasonable time frame and i hang out a lot as a feminist an intersectional feminist with people going down with capitalism dismantle the system you know defund the police and i'm like yeah great but what can we do now that that makes today a little bit better that resources people more that's where i naturally sit and i would suggest me trying to be a radical won't work it's not my authentic self And nor should I be asking radicals to be more pragmatic because we need to work in harmony. And what I would say that you have, Lily, is social capital because you have a profile. Now you can ditch that social capital and go and live on uh, a commune ranch somewhere, but then you don't get to shine a light on the voices around the world that wouldn't be heard unless you amplified them so it's a choice you need to make and at some point in your life you might go I'm more radical and pragmatic screw my social capital I need to do what I need to do I'm going to take my daughter and we're going to live somewhere you know that that may come to you but I would say what you do has value and don't underestimate the value of the platform you have the profile you have the connections you have
1: this is my uh therapy session for everyone listening this is my therapist deborah i'm glad you get to meet her (laughs) my life guru um you know what i'm saying though i totally know what you're saying and i have for sure i've identified as a pragmatist for a long time and occasionally be tempted by radicalism and i think i've gotten more and more authentic in a radical approach you know like i've kind of stepped away from um the system more and more but i've still definitely got a foot in it and both because it's fun sometimes, if I'm being t- totally honest, you know, it's fun to do trips and to meet interesting people. That is the mode of kind of change and operation that makes sense to me at this point in time. Because as you say, if I just lived off grid, if we all, if, if everyone who made that decision just lived off grid, as my friend Mark Boyle did, and I think he's probably the, the environmentalist I respect, maybe most in the world of, of people I've met trying to put their, their values into action, the reality is the system won't change. You know that we actually need people inside the system trying to change it. If we have a hope in hell of of not destroying um, the ecosystem,
2: but I do think we need people also going. This is what it means to live off grid. This, totally. you know, this is This is totally. this is what it looks like, and also this is the only thing I can do now because I'm going to implode if I don't do it. So everyone needs to follow their heart to do authentically the thing that they can do best. And that may be the best value he can offer. And this is the best value he 100%. can
1: offer. 100%. Yeah, yeah. And I love that diversity of approaches because it's a bit like the Jehovah's Witness cult thing, right? I think anybody who says this is the right way to live, this is the right way to do life, this is the right way to be an environmentalist, this is the right way to be a feminist. It's, so, it's like that philosophy of, of a right way is so problematic
2: um we are in a we are really in a bind at the moment because the internet is so unnuanced but social media certainly is so unnuanced there is a constant demand for convergent thinking and i don't think the world's problems are going to be solved with convergent thinking somebody said to me the other day i've been told i can't publish this book because i'm a privileged white woman but the book itself is shining a light on extraordinary things. And I was like, we're getting to the point where only four people are going to be able to say only four things in a loop. Like, I don't want to be told the lines I have to say. And I got to the point on Twitter where people were saying, this is the language you have to use. This is what... I'm like, okay, sure, sure, sure. But we do need divergent thinking to solve these problems. It's not like, like, like somebody on Twitter has it sussed and can feed the lines to the rest of us. And if we just say those things, everything's going to get better. We've got to feel them. We've got to know them. And sometimes we've got to disagree about how to best make change uh, and and argue it out. That's not to say, by the way, that in doing so, what is up for dispute is anybody's identity or humanity. Um, I, I I do see the line has to be drawn there. Yeah, I don't think if people are on Twitter, Twitter saying, "Down with these sort of people," then that's that's a hard line, and I get that. But overall, if we're looking to achieve goals together, we need to be able to say, "Hey, you know, while we're getting there, I need to be able to compromise over here." Okay, well, I don't think you should be compromising over here, and that's a discussion that we need to be able to have, and we need to be able to live with disagreement. And the left is appalling. At living with disagreement, and sitting comfortably with divergent thinking.
1: There's a beautiful quote that often gets attributed to Voltaire, but was actually apparently said by a woman, Evelyn Beatrice Hall, you probably know, I disapprove of what you have to say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Mm. And I really love that kind of framework of, of culture, of society, where we're we embrace diversity of opinions and thoughts and dialogue because it's only in, in embracing that that we will give each other the opportunity to learn yeah. and give ourselves the opportunity to learn, be allowed to make mistakes, you know? Um, so, yeah, I completely agree. So let's play on this idea. You don't have to come up with one if you don't want to, but I thought it would be fun to do it. I'm an environmentalist, but do you identify as an environmentalist?
2: Oh, yes. I do. I think it's the responsibility of every single human being on planet Earth right now to be focused on the environment, because this is our home. And the Earth will carry on. What we're doing is making it inhospitable for ourselves. And... We keep thinking we need to include the Earth. You know, when people talk about diversity and inclusion, it's like, oh, well, we could make a few more compromises for you, planet Earth, but we do have a business to run. That's how we talk to the Earth. The Earth is like, listen, if you, I've given you a beautiful hotel room. If you want to trash it mm-hmm. and make it inhospitable for you, lock the door, set it on fire, turn the fridge off, throw the television out the window, quite soon you're not going to be there any longer, but this hotel room will go on. And that's the thing. I think we're just making it more hospitable for underwater creatures.
1: I like that analogy. I'm going to explore it a bit deeper, though, because I think what we're doing is we're building a really beautiful hotel room that's exquisite, you know, that's like the nicest hotel room, that's super comfortable, It's always the right temperature, that always has the right food, any food we want, any time of year, any day. Loads of fashion, every day we can change it, blah, 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 blah. You know, amazing Netflix. We're building this, like, perfect hotel room. And we're sort of not paying attention to the fact that like, outside our window, we're setting the garden on fire.
2: That's a better analogy.
1: And destroying like everything around this hotel. Because I think it's actually the pursuit of the beautiful hotel room, metaphorically speaking, that is actually probably driving the destruction of the planet that will inevitably mean that the whole hotel room of the Earth gets completely
2: destroyed. That's actually a really great analogy. It's better. Because what you're saying is, in order to have this hotel room beautifully furnished and fully stocked and incredibly convenient. We need this furnace outside, creating all this energy for that to happen. But the furnace is becoming a raging fire that's going to heat up the hotel room to make it unlivable and then ultimately burn it down and extinguish it. 100% that's what we're doing. And we keep going, yeah, but it's so lovely here. Let's not rip out some of the conveniences.
1: Let's just turn the air condition up higher.
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Which, of course, creates more need for the furnace outside and so on and so on and so on on in a horrible loop. But I think we are making the earth probably an hospitable environment for some underwater creatures that thrive on drinking straws. You know, at some point, the earth will be underwater and there will be some creatures that will evolve who, uh, for them the ideal environment will be an ocean full of plastic because that's what we're creating. We won't be here anymore, but the earth will go on. The, the earth will go on. But we think somehow the earth is ours. It's at our command. It's part of, it's our, It's our servant and it's not. It's not our servant. It's our home, but we are only welcome to live here as long as we create the environment for ourselves to live here as long as we sustain the environment for ourselves to live here at some point the earth is going to go you've now changed the environment to such an extent that there's nothing I can do for you you get to be extinct now so are you an environmentalist oh god yeah but I want to make changes and I think to make that into like an I'm a feminist but uh joke it would be something like um I'm an environmentalist but I'm not 100% sure always what things can and should go in the recycling bin. I look at things sometimes and I go, well, this is plastic. And it says, and I'm looking for that little logo on it. I'm like, I'm going to go with, this is recyclable because I want it to be. But I absolutely know that you you need to know. And sometimes I'm like, I'm going to look this up later. I'm in a hurry now. Let's just put it there.
1: Going back to the to the feminism question, if you do you ever run into people because I have and I'm sure you have who sort of say like, well, it's not an issue in the West, you know, or in developed countries. Like, yes, maybe it's an issue globally because there's lots of data that shows that women are lacking rights in certain countries. But in England, for example, what are you talking about? Like, there are much bigger issues to to focus on. Jordan Peterson, for example, if you're having a chat with him, what would you say?
2: I would say to Jordan Peterson. Here are all the ways in which I see gender inequality disadvantaging men. So my opener to Jordan Peterson would be that if he and I were in a dinghy in the middle of the ocean because we were refugees of climate change or war or we were on a boat that was sinking, he would be expected to get out of that dinghy if the dinghy couldn't take so many people over me because women are children first. But so would a 21-year-old who had a lot more life ahead of him, who maybe was half my weight and would sink the dinky less quickly. Just Just women and children first.
1: But, you know, I don't know in reality if that actually happens because there's this data around the impact on women and men from different disasters globally. And they think the reason is because women often... Perform these kind of caretaking roles and will stay behind to look after children, stay behind to look after family, um be sort of sacrificed in the process. that means that, yeah, kind of natural disasters and climate change is more likely to actually erode women's rights than than men's.
0: Lily's right. Women are up to 14 times more likely to die during natural disasters. And male survivors outnumbered women three to one after the Thailand 2004 tsunami. Those are some tricky stats to hear.
2: It's certainly true women are expected to stay behind. And there's lots of cultural reasons why it's seen that women will not fare well on the road. And it, te- making that break is a dangerous thing to do so they end up staying behind. That's absolutely valid, but I'm trying to build a bridge to Jordan Peterson no. <laughs> no, I do
1: get, I do get. Sorry. I'm trying to give him ground,
2: Lily. I'm trying to give Jordan Peterson a great position. No, but piece I do think the
1: point that men benefit from from gender equality is a massive one, for sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, 100%. So, you know, in this example, I mean, I know this because my husband and I had a Syrian refugee come and live with us four years ago, four and a half years ago, and he's now very much my family. He's as much my family as anyone in the world. And his name's Steve, um, short for Mustafa. And he said, yeah, I've asked him about this. And he said, yeah, you know, of course. He said, I've got, I had friends who had to get out of dinghies um, because women are children first. And so I would ask Jordan Peterson, is that fair? And if it isn't fair, if there is a reason why maybe I should get out instead of this 21-year-old young man who's got all his life ahead of him. I mean, not that I'm old, but, you know, for example, if I thought this feels like the right thing to do. It's hard to get out of a boat of privilege. And I would find it hard if it's two o'clock in the morning and the water is inky black and there might be sharks. I can't promise you I would do the right thing and get out of that boat and let that 21-year-old or even that 19-year-old young man. It's hard to get out of a boat of privilege because society says that's my place in the boat. And if I did get out, obviously I'd want it recorded and I'd want people to say, she died as she lived a feminism. She died a feminism, gang, look at her. Uh, because it would be seen as a generous act on my part. It would be, you know, I'm joking about wanting it to be filmed, but you know what I mean? It's like, it would be seen as a generous act and it's hard for men to get out of a boat of privilege. So if there's 12 men on the board and they all feel they've earned their place there, which one of them is going to go, Guys, some of us have got to get out of this boat of privilege because, yeah, it's great to have a, a, you know, a job on a board where we paid loads of money to just have a chat. But half of our customers are women and all of us are men. So who's going to get out of the boat of privilege?
0: Well, this seems like a perfect place to tell you about She Changes Climate, a global nonprofit campaigning organization driving awareness of the crucial role of women in accelerating just climate action. So it was born when the UK leadership team for COP26 was announced as being 100% male. And after much hoo-ha, they added two women to director level. Although several of the men on the leadership board agreed it was a problem, none of them stepped down.
2: So I would look at all of the intersections of gender inequality. I would look at the fact that if I go down onto Camden High Street right now, and I pointed at a black man and said to a police officer, he stole my iPhone, the police would go over to him and probably manhandle him and search him. But if he pointed at me, a white woman, and said, she stole my iPhone, they would laugh or they would come over and they'd go, could there have been a little prob- a mistake? Could you have accidentally picked up this gentleman's phone? I know that. We all know that anecdotally. So how can I really honestly say that I am less privileged than that man. There are many ways in which I am not. And I know that there's no mule like a white woman who doesn't know she's carrying. White women are the least criminalised human beings in the world. And so I'm, I am going to be less criminalised than a black child, than an innocent black child. You know, we've just had this horrible story about um, a teenager called Child Q who went to school and um, the teachers said she smelled marijuana and they called the police and the police strip searched her and it was very humiliating. You can read about it. I won't you know, tell you all the gross, gruesome details, but very, very humiliating. And she has gone from this sunny, happy-go-lucky child into this reclusive, terrified human being, a poor little thing. You know. So I, I think we absolutely need to look at the way we demoralise, brutalise, criminalise uh, black and brown children. And 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 if and some of those are male children. Like, let's be completely honest about this. You know, it is not only the gender equality gap that needs to close and it is not a simple one to close. So I find when I say these things to men and I demonstrate that I get that this is a two-way street, men are much more open to then acknowledging that if we look, a, a cursory look at the House of Commons – would show us and any parliament in the world pretty much um, almost would show us that men are making most of the decisions all of the time and a cursory look at you know CEOs across the world who run these big corporations you're more likely to be a white man called Dave than you are to be a woman of of any race and run a company
0: so let's break this down In business, in 2021, only 18 women were in a CEO position at FTSE 100 companies. And in government, only 26 women are heads of state. And at that current rate, gender equality in the highest positions of power will not be reached for another 130 years. I smell imbalance.
2: So if I am happy to go, here's all the ways that men are disadvantaged... It's assumed that the woman should look after the children and men sometimes lose out on paternity rights. Does that seem fair to you? No. Well, do you know what doesn't seem fair to me? This. Both of these things don't seem to be fair to me. And I think that really helps. And the more you can give ground in any argument, genuinely, authentically, not making stuff up, the more likely the other person is to go, OK, fair play. Yeah, I, I can also see your point.
1: I'd written about the language of Mother Earth In my book, and I've been researching how different indigenous cultures all around the world have used this language of Mother Earth. And that actually when extractive industries first started operating like mining a few thousand years ago, there were many indigenous voices, but also, also like authors like Pliny the Elder, who would be writing about kind of protesting in their day about mining and saying we shouldn't be digging into the kind of womb of the mother earth. We shouldn't be desecrating the bowels of mother earth. And there was often using this language of mother earth and the sort of raping of mother earth, the desecrating of mother earth to argue that we shouldn't be kind of extracting things um, from her. And there's a whole movement, you know, that's called eco that looks at the kind of relationship between, as I understand it, the patriarchy. So how for hundreds if not thousands of years we have normalised and accepted women being property and women being commodified and in cases women being kind of you know raped assaulted etc and that has been symbiotic with the fact that we have been able to kind of rape and pillage the woman of mother earth yes philosophically speaking those things are then kind of culturally connected um and so all that to preamble to say i thought it was kind of fascinating when you came off your ayahuasca retreat and you talked over and over again in the language of mother ayahuasca and mother ayahuasca said this and mother and it was this very feminine language around your experience um so I wanted to ask you about that you know why why did you use that language what was the experience in terms in terms of the connection between gender and nature for you
2: well Everyone always says who takes ayahuasca and, you know, if the listeners don't know, it's a, it's a Peruvian tea that is psychedelic and it ignites the parts of your brain uh, that you use for personal memory and also for uh, epiphanies and revelations. And so it's an extraordinary experience or certainly can be an extraordinary experience and it was for me. And I was ready for it. And I think it's something you shouldn't do unless they call it getting the calls, unless you feel ready and drawn to it. Don't do it. Do it if you think, yes, I'm, I must do this and then find somewhere that you have personal recommendation of and you can really uh, trust that they're going to look after you because it's a very powerful medicine. It's from the earth. And, and I admit I turned up to it, even though I'd had an incredible experience on a, a therapeutic dose with a therapist of mushrooms. Um, I still turned up a little bit sceptical and a little bit arm's length. But because I'm from a theatre background, I know that sometimes if you give something reverence and you refer to it as mother ayahuasca, you allow it to inhabit you more. So in the first integration circle... Of this retreat where I went, uh, which was called, um, APL Shamanic Journeys Up a Mountain in Spain. And you can also go in Peru, um, which I highly recommend. They really looked after us and made us feel, uh, so, uh, safe and welcome. And they had a brilliant shaman there called Nail, who I adored, um, And I was still a little bit arm's distance from it. I was a little bit like in the integration circle um, because I'd been in a cult when I was younger. I'm very suspicious of anything where we're all going to do this together. And I was like, look, I'm a rationalist. I'm an atheist. I uh, know that psychedelics can rewire the brain. That's why I'm here. I had a great experience with mushrooms. Yes, I think they're from the ground and we're from the ground and, you know, all of that. But I didn't really have this strong feeling around oh i'm going to have a chat to mother earth the way people talk about you know this experience of seeing a woman with mother ayahuasca i wanted to but i was also like you know it's really your brain activating with something with a plant and so my first experience when i took the ayahuasca and you're completely in the dark like literally in the dark on a mattress with 15 other people on mattresses in a hall and my first experience was very blissful and i and i i got a direct answer to my question and I saw very beautiful poetical things and I felt extremely healed. But it was like watching to being in a movie, somewhere between those things. And at one point when I'd had this blissful feeling and I was sitting up and I was moving to the music because the shaman was uh, singing ikaros, these beautiful chanting songs that help you get into this trance state, I actually looked around over both shoulders looking for where is this woman, this mother ayahuasca that people talk about and she wasn't there. And then the second ceremony, I felt very much this woman's force. And she was hugging me, holding me from behind. And I said to her, Mother Ayahuasca, where were you last night? And she said, last night you said you wanted to go alone. I saw you look for me, but you had not invited me. But then you got peace and healing and now you believe. And so now you have invited me and I'll always be here if you invite me. I'm your mother. I'm Mother Earth. You're my child. And... I looked around to see her face and she said, you can't see my face because I'm holding you. And I had a very, very, very beautiful experience. And at the end of the ceremony, the whole room got the giggles, which apparently sometimes the shaman told me happens with certain ayahuasca icaros. It's just sort of like, he said, it's like a an imp or something that goes into the room. It's a spirit that goes into the room and everyone laughs. And it was like, la- it was just, we were just laughing from joy and the ludicrousness of the situation, I think of being up a mountain, taking this special tea and having this experience, but also the the risibility of life, you know, the improbability of life, the whole thing. We were just laughing. We just couldn't stop laughing. And then the, the shaman... Cle- His fingers and everyone stopped laughing at the same time. And then I saw these golden lights on this completely pitch black ceiling in the shape of a woman's face, and she said, Now you can see my face. And it was because I'd engaged in this play and this openness and this connection with other human beings. And in the third ceremony, it was so deep, it was so primal, it was like the history of life, the earth, the very first birth, the very first spark. It was something so connected to the Earth. And she said to me, without using words, it was just a feeling, but she said to me, human beings think they're above the Earth and the Earth earth is their servant. That human beings sort of somehow think, yeah, this, you know, we live here. But almost like we're aliens who's found this, you know, this planet and it's a squat, you know. And she's like, no, you're from me. You are me. You're not better than this. You're connected to every volcano, every waterfall, every bug, every amoeba. And I felt it. I felt it. And I saw so much beauty, Lily. I can't describe what I saw in the third one. The first two, I got answers to personal issues and it was very clear. But the third one, I can't describe it. And I said to her, Mother Ayahuasca, like, I can't describe this to anyone ever. And she said, no, I'm taking you somewhere somewhere cannot describe to anyone who has not been there and anyone who has been there you do not need to describe it to them and it was so beautiful I was crying I was I I can't describe the beauty I saw it's indescribable but I cried I was so I couldn't I cannot tell you the love that I felt I did not think I was capable of receiving so much love and then after I'd seen like what felt like hours of this beauty and this love I started to see decay, sorrow, death in humanity. And I was like, I don't want to look at this. And she said, no, if you want to see the beauty, you have to see the decay, the sorrow. She said, you don't have to look at it for long, but you do have to look at it. And I saw it. So I looked head on at it. And then I could feel... uh, Some of the listeners might know you... It's traditional to like purge on ayahuasca. You don't eat late in the day. So you're really just bringing up, you know, the ayahuasca itself, usually. And... When I saw the sorrow and the decay in the third one, I can only describe it as vomiting from my hymen, like, up. It was just like... it, But it was like I turned into Mother Earth. <laughs> it was like I was the Earth and I was vomiting up all the inhumanity, the sorrow, the pain, the trauma. It was... I've never vomited like this, Lily. It was extraordinary. It was like... It just... It was so violent. It just came out of me and out of me and out of me and out of me and, of me and I was like, oh, my God. And then once that had happened, I was able to go back into the blissful place. And I had full conversations with her about the earth, the nature of the earth. And in the first two ceremonies, it was much more about me and things that I needed to heal. But in the third ceremony, it was about how she needed to heal and I needed to help.
1: Oh, and what did she say?
2: Well, I mean, this sounds quite spooky, but it it felt very natural at the time. In the first ceremony, the shaman told me that I was getting my third eye. In the second ceremony, I felt this wet uh, patch between my eyes and I tasted it and it was as real as any liquid I've ever felt or seen and I tasted it and it was salty. And I said, Mother Earth, are you crying? Because in the mushroom trip, I'd felt tears on my forehead and I'd looked up to the ceiling because I was indoors and I'd looked up to the ceiling and there were tears coming from the ceiling and she was crying. And she said, no, 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 I'm not crying. And I knew she wasn't. It was just like the only thing I could think. And uh, she said, no, no, that's your third eye. And it's opening, it's new, so it's watering. And in the third one, I was so real, this third eye. Every time I asked her a question, if the answer was yes, it would really water. At one point, I said to her, she was saying, help me. You need to help me. And my eye was really, really, really watering. And I said "And I said to her, do you want to be a guest on my podcast? Like, this, often people will say, hey, I've got a thing. And I was like, we were having a slightly risible conversation. I was like, to be fair, that would be great booking to get Mother Earth on a feminist podcast. I mean, what greater booking could there be? You know, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'd love to have Malala. I'd love to have Gloria Steinem or Stacey Abrams or Greta Thunberg. But Jesus, you know, Mother Earth, you're not going to do any better, surely. What a, what a podcast. Um, but she was saying, yes. She was saying, yes, I need you to... And I, I and I was saying, what do you need? What do you need? And I said, do you need me to help the Amazon? And my third eye was really watering. And she said, yes, it's dying. That part of me is dying and you need to help. And it was like this desperate plea. Last night at a party, after a screening, I met a woman who told me the exact same story. She had just come back from doing ayahuasca and some other Peruvian plants and she, the mother said exactly the same thing to her. I didn't tell her, she told me. I was like, oh my God. She was like, she was saying, help me, help me.
1: I've got goosebumps as you say that, yeah. The last time I did ayahuasca, I did it with um, like, a, like a serious ceremony. I did it with the Huna Queen tribe from the Amazon. And I got such a like, I got, like such an ass kicking. I couldn't even walk, you know. And I ended up just outside the tent lying on the earth hands on the earth sort of like pledging to try and help the earth because I just felt this like need this like like sort of describing this like deep need um to try and give back to the earth and actually I keep bringing it back up I guess because I read it last night this Robin Kamira article she says that's the question we should all be asking ourselves right now is like what does the earth need from us what can we give to the earth
2: and she is real. She's alive.
0: A little more context on Robin Kamara, I think. She's an American author and professor of environmental and forest biology. And the article Lily's referring to is a great read on the gift economy and asks, what can we give in return for the gifts of the earth? Head to the show notes to read more.
2: The more we see her as real and we, and we are from her, the more we will go, yeah, of course we're going to save this being. She's not a... A woman per se but she's we are from her we're made of her this is our only home
1: if someone has listened to this and feels inspired what changes do you think people can make to try and be a more authentic feminist environmentalist are there any changes that you personally have made or want to make
2: I think considering if you're going to travel in a way that's going to significantly cost the earth, are you travelling to do something that is going to reduce inequality or injustice or to see someone you really love and be in a room with them? Or are you travelling to keep that capitalist ball in the air? And if there's a way that you can travel virtually and keep the capitalist ball in the air if that's what you need to do. We all need to put food on the table. I'm just looking under the thing. My cat's rolling something around. I was trying to... (laughs) Just just (laughs) one (laughs) second.
1: That's perfect. That's the other species. My cat is
2: an important species and our podcast is not more important than her game.
1: I agree. Let her roll
2: her ball. Hey. Seymour? Is it Seymour?
1: Maybe.
2: Where are you? Now the cat's ripping up the furniture, just trying to get my attention, I think. Tom, can you please give Seymour some attention because he wants to be the star of this show. Such a man. Toast's not doing that. Toast is just here, happy to be, happy to be here. This isn't species loneliness. I think Seymour sometimes is a men's rights activist because he only wants to need on me if Toast is needing on me. And it's like, you know how men only care about the mental health conversation for men if women are talking about mental health for women? They're like, what about men? I'm like, yeah, well, great, start something. Men definitely need to be talking about mental health. Start a thing. <laughs> and they're like, I don't want to start a thing. I just want to say that it's not fair when you talk about your thing. My cat, my male cat's a bit like that. He's glorious, but only really interested in butting into feminist stuff.
1: And how important is joy for you? Because I read that you were speaking with somebody, I think, who used to run Amnesty in, in Turkey. And she was talking about joy as an important part of kind of activism.
2: Yeah, her name's Idol, and she was running Turkey Amnesty. And she was saying all the time, this country's going to turn into a police state. And people were going, uh, oh, no, no, don't put that negative energy out there. And then one day she was arrested on the job, doing a, like a PTSD workshop with elderly people. And she was sent to a series of prisons and she's very funny. If you listen to that episode of the Guilty Feminist, it's a Christmas special from a couple of years ago. And she gives like really like trip advisor reviews of every prison in Turkey um, in a very funny way. She's like, well, I like the toilets there because they were decent, but the guards were mean and the food was okay. Um, And uh, she said that the three things you need She's safe now, by the way. She's in Switzerland, I think. Um, But she said the three things you need for a revolution uh, and to change things uh, are, first of all, uh, resistance. She said every government's looking out the window going, how much can we get away with of our agenda before the people resist? Because there's more of us than there are of them. But then she said you need resilience because if if a million people come to the first march, then half a million people, then 50,000, they know they can exhaust you. So then they can bring in anything they want. So resistance, resilience. But she said the thing the guilty feminist has that a lot of activist spaces ignore is joy. Because she said joy brings people to you like a magnet and it allows them to be resilient. It allows them not to get exhausted. Gloria Steinem said something like, Uh, If you want to have fun and laughter and dancing and sex after the revolution, you've got to have those things during the revolution. So we mustn't leave those things out. And so I would say um, get more connected to Mother Earth in any way you can. Get into nature. Psychedelics may not be for you. Meditation may be for you. But sit in nature and just breathe. breathe. Be and breathe. Be and breathe. Be and breathe. Something that I got a lot of in my second uh, experience with ayahuasca was breathe like a newborn. And because I was adopted, I realised I'd never really breathed with those long newborn breaths that, you know, when you see the tummy going up and down and just breathe and be. So now I go into this space where I breathe like a newborn. And if I'm sitting in nature, I can genuinely connect. So everyone can do that. It doesn't matter even if you live in the middle of a really busy city. You can, if you can get outside, you can look at the sky if there's anywhere with a little bit of grass or you can keep a pot plant on a windowsill, you can sit and stare at that pot plant and feel the leaves and connect. Um, it, it, anything that you can do, if there's a little park near you where you can take your children and just they can just feel the grass under their feet or under their fingers, anything we can do to feel more part of this planet is going to help us ultimately protect the planet and allow the planet to protect us as she wishes to.
1: Oh, thank you, Deb. That was beautiful is there anything you'd like to promote that you'd like to mention
2: i'm currently on tour around the uk with the guilty feminist if you enjoy later with jules holland uh graham norton and michael mcintyre's roadshow but you could imagine that those three white men could be women and in fact invite women to play then you will love the guilty feminist live show you will find yourself feeling jubilant, triumphant, uh, full of vim and vigour. You'll be thoroughly entertained with some brilliant stand-up comics, some incredibly motivating musicians who'll have you dancing in the aisles, but also some deep dive feminist chat with local feminists wherever you are. Uh, We're around the UK and then we are in Australia and New Zealand. Look at guiltyfeminist.com and you will find under live where our show is coming to you. Also, the Guilty Feminist book, um, which is a Sunday Times bestseller and has a couple of chapters on uh, confidence and one on microclimates for success, can be a really great resource to help you rethink how you yourself personally can uh, find the power to contribute your verse.
1: You've done this before. (laughs) I want to come to one of your shows. Yeah, please. Come be a guest. I don't think I'll make it to Australia, but in London or in England. yeah, absolutely.
2: That'd be nice. We'll do one. All right. Love you lots.
1: Love you lots. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for listening to Who Cares Wins with me, Lily Cole. We are so grateful for the guidance and resources from She Changes Climate on this series, an organisation enabling women in all their diversity to lead just climate action globally and for the music that's been provided by the very wonderful musician Cosmo Sheldrake. If you like this episode and would like other people to hear it, we'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts from. And to hear reasons to be optimistic, we have another little Who Cares Wins drop this Friday. This is a Mags Creative production. Catch you next time. Bye.